Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. Rehan Chowdhury has created both a beautiful perspective as a company to help bring social action to place, as well as is creating the Emerge Las Vegas Festival for the second year in a row. Really interesting different perspective. As a social innovator around music and social activism, you'll hear how he's put together interesting lifestyle businesses around entertainment to really take a look, though, at ways that how we can change who we are and how we look at the world through getting together around music and other lifestyle events. So he's got a great history of taking a look at this stuff in the leisure industries, in casinos, entertainment, and now how he's bringing this to bear with social activism, returning to somewhat of his college roots, and music. So we have the Emerge Festival that when you hear this will uh, be shortly upcoming. So there's still seats available, but also the whole history of how he got to this space and what is it like now to try to put together a social justice and activism event in our Facebook era. Enjoy this podcast. In the last several years, there's been um, just an increased awareness and sense of urgency around uh, minority rights and specifically issues that are plaguing either society or society as a result of issues that are plaguing the planet. And what we wanted to do is create a forum where young professionals could come together and, and professionals of all ages could come together and be able to celebrate um, their intent to be a part of, of positive social change through the lens of this relationship between the social justice industry and the live and the, the live entertainment community, the live music industry. So before we continue talking about that, I'd like you to back up. And I, and you have a really interesting background for this. Can you walk us through um, how you came to this dimension, especially from uh, working in Las Vegas and then working on Life is Beautiful, how, how you got to this point and, and your journey to get here. I mean, my, my career has been both traditional and non-traditional in a lot of really interesting ways, I think. Um, well, one of the things that, that, that has always kind of been consistent is, is while I was kind of pushing my career just from a more traditional perspective forward, um, even if it didn't align with the work I was doing, I was always very engaged <laughs> from a social impact perspective. So um, as, uh, I started out my career as a, an IT consultant for the, um, on contract for the Department of Homeland Security. This is right after 9-11. Uh, we were developing uh, emergency response communication systems and uh, after the attack. So basically, two things went horribly wrong that day. One, we were horribly attacked. But the second is uh, after the attack, the uh, communication infrastructure uh, collapsed um, across the country. So really, nobody knew who was in charge or, or how we were making decisions. So our job right out of college was to go in with the team and try to figure that out. Um, I, I loved the type of work I was doing. It was incredibly meaningful, but I, I didn't really like um, the IT space, the computer space. So I left and went to grad school. And while I was in grad school, I kind of got a taste for entrepreneurship and, and social impact work. I, I co-founded an organization called Project Pyramid. 
which uh, which is a an academic organization that was meant to teach students from across uh, Vanderbilt University's campus ways in which they could um, create positive change through for profit um, uh, micro for profit initiatives uh, in uh, developing or underdeveloped or struggling communities around the world. What do you mean by micro for profit initiatives? And what era was this in? What time frame? Yeah, so this was 2005 to 2007. And around that time, um, Muhammad Yunus uh, founded the Grameen Bank and was, was um, I think he won the Nobel Prize or Nobel Peace Prize around that time um, for his work in, in micro lending. And basically, there they were a series of, of journals, um, books, uh, speeches. Basically, it was like a ton of thought leadership effort going uh, circling around the idea that social impact for um, underdeveloping countries doesn't have to be in the form of charity, but rather if you create for-profit uh, programs, those can, if set up the right way, can create more sustain- sustainable solutions and, and actually be more effective at, at alleviating poverty and, and creating sustained growth or sustainable growth um, in those communities. So that at the time was in the form of, of micro lending um, and micro entrepreneurship. So creating startups like teaching um, uh, women in a community in a village in India how to how to sew certain types of blankets to be able to then sell in on, on both the local and the global market. Um, or uh, teaching um, people how to how to um, produce local coffee or local supplies or or any other kind of local products or services, but be able to teach them the the business foundation that they needed to be able to run them as their own entrepreneurial endeavors. Mm-hmm. So, what we wanted to do was <clears throat> teach university students across uh, and all disciplines that that this type of thinking existed and this new type of model for social activism and social impact was available to them in their careers. Um, I think our, our broader mission was to try to bridge the gap between doing well uh, and doing good, which, which today is, is more commonly referred to as just doing well by doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, so organizations like Tom Shoes, as an example, or Warby Parker, who's, um, and other B Corps whose um, who's, uh, social impact efforts are, are kind of built into the DNA of the organization. At, at the time, that was a relatively new um, concept. So mm-hmm. my, my hat during that time was hung at UCLA's business school, and there was a lot of work with our MBA students in that regard. And so I I appreciate that work a lot because it moved a lot of people's, it, it sprouted a lot of people's later ideas also for what they moved into in their work. And it sounds like that also is part of what it did with you. Yeah, it, it absolutely did. I think that um, with starting a, an organization like that, and, and there, were, there were a bunch of them, like you had mentioned, cropping up in, in business schools across the country. I think there's still, at least in my mind, there's still a disconnect between the work I was doing in grad school and what I needed to do to further my career. So when I graduated, I, I, I took a job in an industry that was the farthest from away from what, what I was doing in the social impact space. I ended up going to work for the casino industry. I got an offer from Caesars Entertainment to join um, their uh, management training program out of business school. So I moved to <clears throat> Atlantic City, New Jersey and spent four years learning every aspect of the casino business. And uh, that ended with, with me 
running uh, marketing and business development for, for the Atlantic City region, which comprised four casinos and represented about 60% of the hotel inventory in the market. Um, and uh, the good news for my career was I had a ton of autonomy and could, could be really progressive in, in the programs I was pioneering. The bad thing about it was uh, I had that autonomy because the company was a bit distracted because um, we were in the middle of the recession. Yeah. The, uh, the economy had collapsed and uh, a company that was a Fortune 500 company with over 150,000 employees globally had to shave off 10% of its workforce very, very quickly. And that, that climbed over the years. The, the kind of public story is, is very easily um, researchable, but basically like as the, the entire country collapsed and the, the global markets collapsed, um, hospitality organizations, travel organizations, leisure organizations got hit really hard and markets like Las Vegas got decimated for a period of time. <clears throat> and that made situations like Atlantic City even worse because the Atlantic City market was already declining. So it was a bleak uh, period of time for, for everybody. Um, I was fortunate that I was able to keep my job amid, amid lay or mass layoffs. And what I focused my attention on was trying to come up with non-traditional ways to get people to come back to Atlantic City to gamble again. So I, I founded what ended up uh, becoming a uh, the the company's lifestyle entertainment program, which um, basically was a catch-all for any uh, entertainment that wasn't a band performing on stage or a Cirque du Soleil style theatrical show. So anything outside of the traditional entertainment space. So. The first event that I uh, founded was um, a food and wine festival with the Food Network that we hosted with celebrity chefs. We followed that up with a televised tennis exhibition with uh, Venus Williams and, and a number, Andy Roddick and a number of other kind of well-known um, tennis players. A uh, figure skating event that was televised with Nancy Kerrigan, um, some fashion shows. We did uh, Atlantic City's first LGBTQ festival. But these were basically just large-scale um, lifestyle cultural events that were trying to get people to come together for, for entertainment first and then kind of discover that Atlantic City was an interesting place that was close, close by to them to visit. So ahead of your time in many ways. Is this, that's <laughs> very much the, both the theme of what you're doing now, but also what's really growing right now in the whole festival space. Yeah, so so we, we, we definitely, I mean, for the casino industry, we're way out of our time. But yeah, for the broader entertainment community, I mean, I think we're still five years off of the fast growth of the, the festival industry that's kind of defined live entertainment and social culture in the last 10 years. But um, So how the heck did you end up at the Cosmopolitan then? Long story short is we, we couldn't save the Atlantic City market. There were macroeconomic forces that just needed to play out before they could start rebuilding. Uh, but what I was able to do is I, I caught the attention of the team that Deutsche Bank had hired to uh, finish um, construction on a foreclosed project in Las Vegas called the Cosmopolitan. Uh, it was a $4 billion luxury resort that, that the original owners had to, had to shutter midway through construction during the recession. And Deutsche Bank had picked up the project and decided to, to take it out of out of the graveyard and, and finish it um so 
six months before uh, the grand opening of the property, uh, I was called, uh, came out to visit, and, and it turned out they didn't have an entertainment strategy at all. They didn't have a grand opening strategy. So it was the perfect time for somebody that's like me, who's uh, at the time, I was, uh, and I think even now, a highly entrepreneurial and creative and, and wanting to wrap my arms around a project that I could have um, as much autonomy as I could out of. So they, um, they hired me out. I moved to Las Vegas and designed the entertainment program for um, one of the highest performing casino resorts in, in the country. Um, so we uh, produced a grand opening that year. It was uh, New Year's Eve 2010. And a big showy concert with Jay-Z, Coldplay, Beyonce, uh, John Mayer, Florence and the Machine, a number of others. Next thing you know, I'm 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 a, I'm an entertainment director in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is the furthest kind of. Uh, that I had no idea I was going to end up in that direction. So from from a government contractor to to the the, the center of Sin City was an interesting transition. <laughs> and it's a center you've kind of hung around since, but not right. So. How did you get from that adventure to Life is Beautiful? Yeah, so I, I spent two full years, and they were great years at, at the Cosmopolitan. I learned a ton. But, but there was this, like, there's this itch that I, I, I had since grad, since grad school where, where I knew that I, I wanted to um, test my hand in, in entrepreneurship and actually just create something from scratch <clears throat> on my own and see, and see what we can do and see, see what I could create. So I left the Cosmopolitan in 2012 and went back to my apartment and I had these floor to ceiling glass windows overlooking the strip. And I, I grabbed a bunch of whiteboard markers and I started drawing all over them and coming up with ideas for, for what I could do. And, and out of probably two months of brainstorm, of just isolated brainstorming, I uh, came up with the idea for a, music and art and impact festival called life is beautiful that i wanted to to produce in downtown las vegas which at the time was in the early very early stages of, of a rebirth effort led by zappos co-founder and ceo tony shea people didn't know this at the time but he was about to invest some of the tune of 500 million dollars in redeveloping that area to try to turn it into a, a the, the kind of next generation millennial inspired city environment so something that was a entrepreneurial haven with tech and entertainment and food and beverage and lifestyle programming etc um so i drew up this plan for this festival and started showing it to a couple friends, trying to see what they thought. And one of them, it was my second meeting, was like, "Yeah, I want, I want to introduce you to my boss." And and a couple of weeks later, I'm sitting down with Tony Shea and his team, and we had um, what amounted to like an hour and a half long meeting. And at the end of the meeting, he decided that this was the project that he wanted to to partner on. So he funded the project, and we were kind of off to the races. So that was summer of 2012 um and we ended up producing the first year of that festival in the fall of 2013 and in four short years the festival was named festival of the year by polestar magazine which is the, the big industry publication and i think is the sixth or seventh largest uh, music festival in the country right now 
I've only gone once. I went last year and had a great time, though I appreciated all the shady spots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Darn warm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Vegas is not a cool city. Well, it is at this I mean, time. It's a cool city, yeah. but it's not a, yeah. it's not a so, so you then transitioned out of that, though, into your current set of adventures? I started Life is Beautiful with the intention of creating a lifestyle entertainment festival that um, that championed uh, stories of positivity and resilience in an effort to help young people work through or be inspired to work through some of the issues that they were dealing with. At the, at the time, and this is a, a story that not many people know about, but at the time, the suicide rates for millennials were, were, were climbing higher and faster than any other living generation um, on the planet. And that's a terrifying, that was a terrifying uh, prospect. And I think before I'd really honed the brand and the storyline for Life is Beautiful, I was at a festival in Chicago um, and sitting in a field with 90,000 people between the ages of 14 and 28 years old and, and noticing that there wasn't a single booth or station or conversation going on on site to help people who need it. Um, and at the time, the statistics were like one in 14 people within that age range were going to attempt suicide during, the, during, during those years. Um, so that was terrifying for me. So I, I basically built the entire Life is Beautiful brand around the idea that we wanted to celebrate shared and, and share stories of resilience, uh, but basically celebrate people who were able to successfully work through social issues in an effort to, to raise awareness for them, but also normalize the idea that like everyone deals with this stuff. Um, while we all are unique individually, the, the situations that we're going through, the challenges that we go through in life as much as we'd like to believe are unique, they're really not. Um, the, 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 these issues are lumped into broader categories. So it's addiction, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's uh, depression, it's mental health, it's abuse, it's, it's dealing with traumatic experiences, it's dealing with post-traumatic stress or severe depression or bipolar issues, whatever it may be. Um, but the idea is if we can create a forum where people can comfortably talk about them, that's step one. Um, and on site, we had something that's in a, anywhere between 25 and 35 different um, nonprofit organizations represented, most of them um, dealing with a wide range of, of these issues that lead to severe depression and ultimately lead to, to the increasing suicide rate. So we were trying to do our part. Um, Plus bringing together yeah. food and art and other uplifting elements to go with that. Yeah, I mean, the idea was like, can you create, um, can you can you highlight all of the pieces of life that make um, the world so engaging and interesting and fun, um, but not ignore what's happening in the world, but rather highlight it and, and, and literally put your, your heart on your sleeve. I mean, that's what we, our original logo for Life is Beautiful was a, a splattered, bleeding heart of sorts. Um, so, so to answer your question, I, I, I ended up, leaving life is beautiful um for a number of reasons but one of the primary ones was i, I wanted to continue that storyline i wanted to continue to to move for like closer and closer to um bridging my entrepreneurial uh, objectives with my my social impact interests and my social activism interests and make those one storyline which i couldn't do um under the life is beautiful brand so I left and I started um, A Beautiful Perspective, which um, has basically been uh, like an incubator of sorts 
for um, social impact and activism led uh, business ideas in the entertainment space. So we founded uh, this festival called Emerge that's taking place in Las Vegas next week. We, we started a, a morning series called Activist Mornings in New York that we piloted at the end of last year. We were bridging together live entertainment with um, with uh, emerging thought leaders around social impact spaces, um, really focused on minority interests. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a media platform we were producing a ton of content out of to try to just raise awareness for, for this next generation of, of thought leaders around social issues. Um, How do you define social issues? And because the reason I ask the question is it depends on where you're standing, right? As to what, and, and both my center at UCLA and my think tank outside of UCLA works on this stuff a lot out here in the LA area in that depending on where you stand, you have both a different set of social issues and some of it is getting other people to head in the same direction as you or change the world around you. But then everyone's got a different lens, objective, um, and different ways that they're activating people to take action in the world or in some sad cases, getting people to not take action in the world. So for for what you're trying to build, what is social action and, and how, how are you fertilizing the areas of social action that you're trying to then grow? I have this conversation quite often of like where we stand in the picture because I think, I think more often than not right now, people want to know which team you're on. And I think one of the, one of the, the challenges is we're, we're not on teams anymore. We're kind of trying to force through our own perspectives. And I, I think what you said, or the way you framed your question was really was dead on that, that one, um, the idea of, of social issues that we're, or so any issue that we are, or any challenge that we, um, as either communities or individuals or races or genders, whatever they may be, that are limiting our ability to progress um, or limiting our uh, ability to, to grow uh, either individually or as a community, I think are areas that, that we tend to focus on. Uh, I, I can't say that we don't take a liberal perspective on things because we do. But I think for us, it's, it's issues that, that involve, one, uh, helping people like individuals work through their, the challenges that they're facing. So whether it's victims of abuse or victims of addiction, um, poverty, recovering from, from hate crimes, uh, whatever it may be. So like, like outside inflicted or self-inflicted pain or trauma that people need to work through, I think is one area that we choose to focus on. Um, but another area is our individual rights and our community rights, this march towards, uh, an equal world where we're, we're, we are all represented correctly. We all are, are at least given the same um, the same opportunities, or at least or at least the limitations or the barriers to those opportunities are removed. So, so I tend to be when I had to, when I put on my cynical hat, I tend to think that in some ways putting things together right now is finding like-minded or not like-minded souls and making them realize that there's a great opportunity they can participate in. So you're starting something new but engaging with people in communities they already are in, how are you growing a new festival? How are you finding like-minded or, uh, or adjacent-minded souls and convincing them to come and engage together in Las Vegas in a week? 
so for us, I, I think the, the the difficult thing that we're doing is we're trying to trying to create a forum for a number of different topics. So at our event, we have speakers and performers that are going to be representing transgender rights, women's rights, gun reform, prison reform, climate change, uh, depression, mental health, working through illness, uh, etc. So for us, it's it's being able to identify the kind of stakeholders or, or constituents that are that are representing each topic and try to bring them in and create a forum in which you're entering the 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 room with an incredible amount of insight and experience based on your association to one to one topic or one mm-hmm. or one um, community. Mm-hmm. But then applying the learnings, the insights, the perspectives that you have onto helping the broader community solve their issues and being able to create a collaborative conversation. So in a lot of ways, it's trying to break down the the kind of siloed barriers that we've created as a result of like the, the way social media is, is facilitated or, or, or kind of changed the way we converse with each other digitally. Yeah. Um, it's trying to create opportunities where we can put like-minded people in the same room, even though they don't necessarily consider themselves advocates for each other's causes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's understanding that the tools that are required to be successful in each one of these areas are very similar to each other. So for us, it, it's more of an academic forum and an educational forum than it is a, a festival or a party. So it's why I, I kind of say we're a hybrid of the two. What we wanted to do was show diverse leaders in each one of these spaces. So. I think one of the things that bothers me the most about how we're consuming entertainment is when people use the line, shut up and sing. That was kind of stapled to, to the girls from Dixie Chicks back during the Bush era. And now it's applied more and more. Because we, we, like, music has always been representative of, of the world that we're trying to, trying, one, representative of the lives that people are living today, but also the, the world that we're trying to make together Mm -hmm. so this notion that musicians don't have a say is crazy to me so the very literal example of what we're doing is like laura jane grace who's the lead singer of a punk rock band called against me who's who's incredibly well known in that space is is also an iconic transgender front woman um who has transitioned uh over the last few years so to see her get on stage and do a, a solo acoustic set of the songs that you know and love and then being able to hear her talk about her advocacy work in the transgender space, or Talib Kweli, who's an incredibly well-known um, uh, musician, hip-hop artist, talking about his work in prison reform. I, I think creating a forum in which young people can see that activists and people working towards social progress take familiar forms that are a bit unexpected could be incredibly eye-opening. So we're, we're experimenting here. I mean, we're, we're in our second year of this event and it feels like we, we're just starting it. So um, I think I'll be able to answer a lot of these questions a little bit better once we get through the event. We have a couple more years under our belt, but we're effectively trying to get people together to talk about the issues that, that we feel um, matter most in any given year. And the goal is to expand the number of topics that we cover each year and expand the amount of talent that we cover. And, but always make it a kind of collaborative, high-energy environment, if that, if that makes sense. You're in New York now. Why Las Vegas? Is it because it is a space that's welcoming to doing a festival or a way easy to get to? What makes Las Vegas the right space for this? 
Yeah, so my my wife and I lived in Las Vegas for seven years, and and we were very much a part of the community here and represented the 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 way that the community was evolving in in very positive ways. Um, we live in New York City now, which I, I love, and that's home. But I think when we were thinking about building this event, the event just in isolation is meant to be representative of a wide range of issues that humans are facing locally, nationally, and globally. So what we wanted was a location that similarly represented all of the issues that we were tackling on on the ground level. So it had representation of the issues that we're facing in probably more serious ways. And and the thing with Las Vegas is people have a tendency to to focus solely on the 40 plus million annual tourists that, that come into the city and the glitz and the glamour. But what they don't realize is the, the city in any given year is 48, 49, or 50 out of 50 in education. The transgender community in the city is is living challenged lives and often forced into or living in the low-income kind of like seedy underbelly of the prostitution-led underbelly of the city. There's an entire underground city of homeless individuals that are either living in tent communities or literally living underground in tunnels under the, under the city. You've got a community of people in the city that love their state. They love Las Vegas and they want to see this place grow and mature and become a better version of itself. And it doesn't hurt that in any given year, Vegas is a, is a Nevada is a battleground state. So like uh, during election cycles, the amount of the, the number of politicians that come in here and do big platform speeches and then leave, um, make it an interesting space for us. It's, it's more politically charged than I think a lot of people give it credit for. So I think we're here because we love this city and uh, I, I know this city really well. I was part of the community and I do believe that something like this event coming out of San Francisco would have made sense and would have felt familiar and easy, but um, we're not trying to do something that's easy. We're trying to do something that, that makes an impact. So building it out of an, an, an unexpected space, like the heart of the Las Vegas strip, I think was really exciting for us. Is there anything better since you've started so many different things over time is there anything better in the current technological world? And I know that you, you're not a technology story. You're much more of a social transformation and innovation story, which I adore. Uh, but is there anything about now that makes this easier or harder to do than your different things you've started in the past? This is harder than anything I've done in the past. It's harder for, for a number of reasons. So one is um, the way we promote events has fundamentally changed over the last 10, not even 10 years, like five years. Traditional advertising has become relatively ineffective and replaced by Facebook, which in any given year is changing the rules in which you can utilize the platform to, to, to connect with audiences. Um, almost weekly. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost weekly. weekly. So, so, to to be a concert or an or a festival or an entertainment promoter in the space where you used to be able to do full page ads in newspapers and magazines, do radio advertising and billboards, and that would sell your tickets. Now all of a sudden, this like elusive digital social 
universe is your only vehicle to reach your audience. And even then, in any given day or week, to your point, you don't know whether you're able to do that effectively or not. So that's I think that's challenge number one is uh, we're working with a platform that literally it changes. It's like it's like if you were advertising in in Vogue, and in any given week, it's well, we're a magazine this week. Now we're a digital platform. Now we're not talking about fashion anymore. Now we're talking about sports. And it just makes it very difficult. So I, I think that's yep. that's number one. Number two is we're a we we're a politically charged entertainment platform. And because of what happened in the 2016 election, and because of the heat that Facebook is getting, they've um, they they they're like I don't know how to describe this well without being terrible to them, but they're they're they they've they're being they're being reactive. Yeah, maybe incredibly that's reactive. So what's happened is our, all of our advertising because we have Emma Gonzalez as a speaker is getting flagged, and we're forcibly limited in the the audience we're able to reach. Which was something we didn't find out until halfway through our like marketing cycle, which is really scary because um because we're not we're not I and mean, what they're trying to do is they're trying to target fake news and they're trying to target like politically charged blogs, but we're we're a conference and festival, so being limited already by having to use a platform that's changing constantly and then being further filtered uh, because of the nature of our content has been really an, an interesting battle to deal with. And it's not like you're dealing with a local magazine where you can call up the publisher because they don't even understand the rules that are, that are kind of playing out at any given moment. So that's, I, I think, issue number two. And I think the third, the third issue is, it, it's, it's funny, um, Adam Grant in his book Originals called out that, that uh, people on the same side of an issue will have a tendency to attack each other more viciously than people on opposite sides of the issue. So like <laughs> vegans and vegetarians will fight to the death, ignoring meat eaters, just as like a, a just lame kind of basic example. So the idea that like one, like we, we are on one side of the fence, right? So I, I can't look at anybody and say that we're not a more liberal and more kind of like progressive in our minds organization to see that like nobody's really got, there's no kind of shared perspective on how to solve for these issues. And, and we're almost, we're almost even further divided within our kind of camps. So that, that's been interesting too, of, of the feedback of like, well, I'm glad that you're advocating for gun reform, but I don't think that person that you're bringing in is the right advocate. Yeah. Right. Which is, which is, which is a challenge because I think from, from, from our perspective, it's, Hey, look, we just all want to solve the issue. Yeah. Getting people together to talk between issues, which is sounds like your core theme is harder and harder in many communities. And you're trying to actually bring it together more intentionally um, and running into all the roadblocks. Yeah. That is exactly that's that's very well stated. So, I mean, I mean, look, I, I I am incredibly optimistic because if you look at the last fifteen years of live entertainment development, the largest festivals in the world were not ticketed music festivals; they were protests. It was the Million Women. It was the the Women's March. It was. Uh, March for Our Lives. Um, well, I would say protests or fundraisers, right? Yeah. So even the examples of Latin Aid and other things, that there was a 
you know, do this, come do this, and the funds from it will go directly to do X. And, and this is in a world now where people think that, that liking something on Facebook that's, is social activism. You're doing something that's trying to then have have what as the follow-on? And I ask this as we're kind of coming to the close of this great conversation, but what can people do at your event to then be follow-on? And which, and I'm assuming that there might still be tickets, but maybe not. Yeah, no, I don't no. know. Okay. So I'll ask in a second for how people find out. But also a lot of people will be listening to this over the next couple of years. How can people get engaged or follow up in what you're doing and what's kind of the call to action from your event into the world? Yeah. So I, I think step number one is um, if anyone wants to look up the event or attend the event, uh, all the information is at emergelv.com. And the events in just over a week um, or a week to this day, and um, there are definitely still tickets available, a uh, limited number, but they're, they're available. I think our, our objective is, and I've said this a few times, we're an educational platform. So I think for us, it's one, coming into the event with an open mind that you, yes, you have your perspective and yes, you have your way of being a part of like the, the activism community or the movement, but being open to the idea that there are other ways to get involved and um, often the, the learnings or the tools that you're going to use to that can ultimately be the most effective in your kind of personal path um, can come from the work that people are doing in other areas that you may not necessarily be involved in. So if you're a, a advocate of, of um, gun reform and that's your, that's what you're championing going in and listening to a conversation um, with the leaders of Planned Parenthood, for example, and try to figure out how how they respond in light of, of these these kind of like movements within conservative states to overturn abortion rights and the right to choose. But being able to listen to that conversation, and understanding the tactics that they're employing, um, often we'll be able to find some kind of interesting tools to be able to apply into our core areas of, of interest. But then also understanding that focus is a great thing, but there are so many issues that need to be addressed and there's so many kind of micro movements that are out there raising awareness for them and being constantly aware of not just the issues from a likes and retweets perspective, but actually understanding your community, what organizations are in place, um, what leaders are in place and what, as a result, um, when you're making your Decisions to align with nonprofit organizations. Who do you work with? Who do you donate your time to charity wise? Who do you donate your money to? But then more importantly, coming up in these election cycles, who do you vote for? And, who, and whose stories do you listen to? That you're, in many ways, this is a storytelling. It, it really is. And there's so many great programs out there and tours out there of, of people, of like organizations like ours, creating platforms for people to tell their stories. But I, I think one of the things that scares me a bit is because of like the social media movement, we're not able to humanize these issues as much as we once did. So the mm -hmm. more stories that can be told and the more you can hear about an issue and know that know the voices behind it, I think that's an incredible, um, incredible piece of the puzzle. But ultimately, like what we're trying to do is educate and empower our attendees through our community to, to take action around the issues and, and we'll focus their attention on very specific ways to get involved. But then ultimately when they leave the event, it's, it's, it's their responsibility to get, to get involved in the community level. 
and we'll we'll facilitate that part of the conversation in any way that we can. And all of this intertwined with music. Any last comments you'd like to share with our audience? I know you've mentioned a couple artists, uh, Laura Jane Grace, and I think Tully Quali. Uh, any other folks that are playing or people that you suggest people follow and any other things that you would like us to think about? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a bunch of different artists that I, I, I think people should pay attention to. So like some of them are, are unknowns and some of them are really well known. So I mean, one of the more well-known on the lineup is um, Brandon Flowers, who's the lead singer of The Killers. And he's performing, a, he's doing a special performance of the song Land of the Free, which was their um, protest song. Um, and it's the first time The Killers have ever done a protest song. Um, and their, their music video was filmed by Spike Lee and got, got incredible reviews. But he's going to be doing a special performance of that song and, and giving some insight into, into how they put that together and why. So that's number one. I mean, another one is is Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg, who are both Parkland shooting survivors. They're going to have a both. They, they're doing um, individual speeches, but they're also doing a conversation on stage together about their experience and then and their role in the March for Our Lives movement. And then we've got some unknowns, like we've got Weldon Angelos, who's who's speaking this year. He was carrying a, a pound of weed, a pound of cannabis and was arrested and sentenced to 55 years in prison. Uh, President Obama pardoned him before leaving office. So now he's an advocate for, for prison reform, justice reform, um, specifically in the cannabis space. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's gonna be an incredible weekend of, of just in, interesting storytelling, live performances, and great kind of collaborative conversations. Cool. Any last words? As we no, thank up? you for the time. This is um, this is wonderful, and I, I, um, I mean, we're we're just one event in Las Vegas, but there there are a ton of these um, types of events that are cropping up around the country. So I, I recommend people kind of look for the ones that make sense to them. But sharing of stories on on individual experiences within a lot of these social topics uh, are incredible ways to just humanize the issues. And we're just doing our part, but um, I, I hope people can come out and check out the event. Thank you for joining us. Best of luck. Stay healthy. And uh, thank you for sharing your stories of social innovation with music and with community, with, uh, with our community. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.